This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. And I'm Zach Meir. On this week's show, How to Fail. We're miles too hung up on how terrible it is when companies go bankrupt. We're joined by Matthew Syed, author of Black Box Thinking. Bankruptcy is the greatest gift of capitalism. And Luciana Lixandru from Excel. The attitude should be to focus on what the company is good at and try to push that. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. On this week's show, we're talking that classic business theme, embracing failure. In the studio this week, we'll be talking about Matthew Side's black box thinking. Yes, like a black box recorder. We're also joined by Excel venture capitalist Luciana Alexandru. Welcome. So Matthew, let's talk about embracing failure. Is it a cliche or is it a staple business lesson? I think it's an important lesson. And I think the black box recorder in aircraft is a very good metaphor for why it's important. Aviation has systematically improved system safety by analysing its near-miss events, by deconstructing the lessons that are always contained in the black boxes, and that way they can make rational reforms to the procedures in order to ensure that the same mistakes never happen again. I think that's a powerful method Uh, of learning. And I think that our public institutions, our hospitals, our schools, and many businesses could learn from that. I wanted to bring that up because in the book, you uh, compare aviation and the medical profession, surgeons in particular. Um, what, What are the lessons that we can learn from those two professions? Well, healthcare has a very different culture. It struggles to learn from its mistakes. Uh, senior doctors have big egos, uh, expensive educations, and when there is what you might call a suboptimal outcome, the most <laughs> serious of which is that a patient dies, they find it quite difficult to be open and honest and to report the information. Uh, a series of euphemisms are often deployed instead, like uh, it's just a complication of the procedure or we're terribly sorry, but it's one of those things. We did everything we could. Um, That takes the sting out of the mistake, but it also reduces the motivational impetus to make the rational reform so that future patients aren't harmed in the same way. Uh, There's also uh, a big big problem in uh, healthcare culture of high blame. If clinicians feel they're going to be litigated or sued or struck off for honest mistakes caused by deeper lying systemic problems, they won't volunteer that information. That mindset of self-justification and high blame are very intimately related. They create very specific and measurable cultural dynamics, the overall effect of which is to suppress the information that we need in order to make rational adaptation. And that is the reason why preventable medical error is one of the biggest killers in Britain. Matthew, I just wanted to, I mean, reading the book, uh, you went through uh, many of the people who look after us in one way or the other, but it made me feel like I don't want to get, I don't want to end up in a court of law. I don't want to end up in a hospital. I don't want to, probably don't even want to end up in a restaurant where they might poison me. Um, you've got all these situations, which or, or obviously fly in a plane. I didn't want to, I don't I hate flying anyway, so you just totally put me off. Um, but but fly, flying's a, a successful model. Flying is a good thing. I mean, there's only one crash for every 8.3 million takeoffs amongst the major airlines because they have the right approach to, to failure and near-miss events. 
Don't but be scared. But no, but the, 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 the intuitive thing, I mean, I mean, the whole black box concept is counterintuitive. Uh, learning from mistakes. We tend to, in society, learn from other, trying to copy, emulate other people's glories. So you try to copy a successful footballer. Uh, you try and copy a successful song. Um, it, it's, it's, you have heroes who you try and emulate. You don't actually, no, you don't normally try and emulate Napoleon or, uh, you know, people who've lost in, in business, uh, you know, try, the, the CEO of BHS. It's, it's, but it, it seems that you're, you've tilted it that way. Well, the key thing to think about is that the successful institutions are successful precisely because they have an enlightened attitude to their failures and to their weaknesses. Um, so you, I've talked about aviation, but the free market works because of bankruptcy. It's when companies fail and they go under that they send a signal about what is not working. And it means that companies replicate those that are working. And then you get a higher level of uh, adaptation. And then there is, again, a selection mechanism called bankruptcy, which continues and facilitates the overall success of free markets. The reason why centrally planned economies didn't work is there were no failures. There were no bankruptcies. Bad companies were protected by were protected from bankruptcy by the state. The state was protected from bankruptcy by printing money. And in the end, the entire system collapsed. To segue across from that, Luciana, I spent my entire life talking to entrepreneurs who complain that in the UK we don't accept failure as a concept. Is that true or is that a bit of a cliche as well? Okay, that's a difficult question. I think that, first of all, in, in the startup world, failure is natural. Now, it depends on the scale of failure. I think many companies start and, and unfortunately don't make it. It's very much, it, it's a natural selection. Some companies will make it and become successful on different scales, either billion dollar plus companies or just self-sustainable companies that are smaller. And man, many companies will, will not succeed. Um, so I guess you can call that failure. This being said, I would also say that with every big success, there are parts of the journey that are not easy. Um, so maybe you can call those small failures and it's okay to embrace those and learn from those. Uh, I don't know, maybe one international expansion, one market didn't work. It's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to analyze the reasons and hopefully learn from that when you go to another market. Um, yeah, so I guess the overall point is there is, uh, even in successful companies, there are always parts that uh, that don't work and that you can learn from. In terms of and your, that's okay. In terms of your investments, are you, are you happy even if only one out of 10 investments you make works at the venture capital stage, at the sort of seed funding stage? Is that, is that a good enough ratio? Because you'll make so much money from the, the new Pret-a-Manger or the new uh, KFC that it doesn't matter about all the nine businesses, uh, the other nine businesses. So that's that not don't. really our model. We make seed investments occasionally. I would say our sweet spot is from a Series A, a Series B, um, and I, I can assure you that our success rate is higher than 1 in 10. Um, we're, we're very happy. Uh, absolutely the model of venture capitalists is that a couple or a few of the companies in, in a fund or out of 10 companies will be very successful and will return um, the vast majority of, um, of the investments throughout the, the full portfolio. But I would say it's, uh, it's better than 1 in 10. And we're very happy. When you're making your investments, do you fear failure? Are you scared of it? Gosh, um, I don't think you can. I think you need to do your homework. I need to. I think you need to understand what the risks are. Um, it's very much the nature of the business. 
if you if that's what you think about and that's what you focus on even in early days it's a bit of a scary mindset so absolutely you need to understand what the downsides are you need to understand why a company might fail but i think that the attitude should be to focus on what the company is good at and try to push that and matthew should we fear failure well, it's worth drawing a distinction between two different types of failure or error. There are failures of execution and failures of experimentation. Failures of execution you don't want to make. You don't want to have a doctor giving the wrong drug to a patient <laughs> yeah, because of sure. a slip or a lapse. And great manufacturing companies bear down on errors of variation through tools like Six Sigma and Lean in order to streamline the business and reduce those errors of execution. That makes a lot of sense. But when it comes to errors of experimentation, you have to make those errors as we push back the frontiers of our knowledge. Venture capital is very much in that ballpark. You can make rational decisions about whether a company is going to successfully navigate the value proposition, but you never know for sure. And some of the most successful startups are those that test their assumptions early. They get a working prototype to early adopters, find out whether it's flying, if there are certain defects in the value proposition, they make early adaptations. That's what this is all about. In a fast-changing and complex world, unless we are capable of discovering our weaknesses, making rational errors of experimentation, and facing up to the challenges that are an inevitable part of life and learning, we won't succeed. To come back to the question you asked about, you know, I was saying that centrally planned economies fail big when they fail. The reason we failed big in 2007 eight is because some companies were too big to fail. They, there was a risk that it would bring the entire system down with them. What you want is to, is to have failures that don't cost us too much, but which maximize our learning. And that's why we need free market economies where companies are never too big to fail. Okay, so can, can we uh, have some stories here? When What have your big failures been, Matthew? Well, I don't make them. No, no, no. I've, had, <laughs> I've made some very, very big failures. So when I was the, the British table tennis number one uh, for 10 years, I, um, my second Olympic Games in Sydney in 2000, uh, four years of build-up for this big match against a German opponent, and I went into the megawatt light of the arena and froze. Oh, God. I choked. And I was out of the competition in about 30 minutes flat. And it would have been easy for me to go into denial, not to have thought about it, to have edited it out of that running narrative we all keep in our heads. Instead, I thought, what went wrong? What mechanisms and tools can I deploy in the future to make that less likely? And that was a massive learning experience. And what did you learn from it? What, what did you do the next time? Oh, there's some massive literature on this. <laughs> it's it's uh, my set first book, Bounce. Uh, chapter six, I deal with this. And some, I mean, I can talk about it if you like, but there is a massive area now of performance psychology about averting what's called amygdala hijack when a small part of the brain, an almond-shaped piece of the brain, goes into overdrive under conditions of stress and how to, how to calm it down. Yeah, but then you've got an emotional issue which uh, you can't rationalize, you can't prevent. I mean, I, I've, uh, like, you know, you choked to the table tennis uh, uh, game. Uh, I, I failed interviews at uh, Harvard, Oxford, and Cambridge because they were important interviews. Them, to be fair if, if they, if they were, which is, you know, it's quite an achievement. But probably the only person to do that. Uh, but it, it's, it was, an, it's an emotional problem, not uh, one that you can actually rationalise and have a little like a plan. And whether you have the plan, the first thing you do is you, you can't follow the plan because you've choked. I mean, it's. How, yeah, how do you, you, you can avert emotional responses with rational adaptation? So, so think about it like this. It's well studied now. You're about to go in for your interview at Harvard and the thing that is at the front of your mind is what if I fail? 
what if I mess up? What if I mess up? I'm not going to get this uh, place at this prestigious university. And if I don't get this place at this prestigious university, I'm not going to get a high-paying job in the future. And if I don't get the high-paying job, I'm not going to be able to afford the mortgage. And if I can't afford the mortgage, my girlfriend's going to leave <laughs> it me. All my parents, it all that, happened. But all of that gets bigger and bigger. So you're going into the biggest occasion of your life and in your mind, you're living in a cardboard box at the roundabout and you've become an alcoholic. So the way to avert that is to stop that psychological and emotional escalation. And the best way to do that, according to very well corroborated evidence, is with certain trigger words that... I mean, we get, we, I don't want to hijack the whole thing with performance well, no, psychology, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, but there that's, are that's ways the to psych- deal yeah, but it is, It's one of those things where the psychology and uh, the, the um, intellect don't marry together. But are, are there similar battles that you have to fight as well? The fear of losing money? I think I would more put this from the entrepreneur's perspective. I think that entrepreneurs fight these fears every day. And as I said, even in the most successful company, there are periods when there are certain struggles, whatever those are, larger or smaller. Um, And there are days when, whatever, your sales are not growing or um, things are not going well. And I think it, it sounds like a cliche, but the only thing that it's important in those situations is a, to acknowledge, but B, to get up and move on and try again and yeah, breaking knock that, on further doors. Breaking that negative feedback loop is really difficult, isn't it? It is. How do you, you, know, how do you step it out is. of yourself? How do you step back from that situation? How do you, you know, the, the, plane, the plane's running out of fuel. That's the one I've got. You're circling the, the airport. I mean, you know, it's difficult to step back and say, you know, and pretend that you're actually sitting on the ground and what would you do? That's true. Just picking up on the, the issue of is, is it bad to fear loss? I mean, I think that is a major issue in, in fund management, for example, where trade, you know, even professional fund managers hold on to their losing stocks twice as long as their winning stocks. And the reason is when there's a losing stock, they don't want to sell it and crystallize that loss because it's unequivocal evidence that they were wrong to buy that stock in the first place. Best way to get out of that is to create what I call a growth mindset, where you get the ego out of the way, where you see the data in a clear-eyed way so you can make rational adaptation. Otherwise, you keep chasing your losses and you crystallize your wins too quickly because you, wanna, you want that evidence super fast that you made a, the well, right decision. That's what decision happens with day traders. I see them all the time that they, 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 you know, they make money nine times out of ten, which is the opposite of what you're yeah. say, supposed to do. And then the one, they have the one big loss on you know, being short of, of, of the pound and they just don't get out of it. You know, this problem it eats all the other behavioral biases for breakfast. I mean, the disposition effect, loss aversion, that's fundamentally related to this basic problem. Day traders lose money hand over fist, because they find it difficult to see the data clearly. It's what aviation does do. It's what British cycling does. It's always looking for the data on its weaknesses so it can turn them into strengths. But is it really that they don't see the data clearly, or is it that they fail to react timely or in the right direction because the data is in front of them, no? But the data's complex. It's the same with high-reputation economists. It's failure to analyse the data more than anything else. Move it from traders to get to, to a really... You know, very bright, intelligent people who are making the wrong decisions. Mm. High-reputation high economists make the worst predictions. Why? Because when there's an <laughs> error of prediction, which is an opportunity to revise and enrich their model of the world, they come up with those tortuous ex-post rationalizations for why they were right all along because they think their reputation will suffer if they admit that they'd made a mistake. That's high-reputation economists how, as measured by how often they visit TV studios. The lower reputation economists are able to update their models because they can see the data clearly for what it is rather than through the prism 
of their prior reputation and their existing model. I read something fairly early on in this saga that suggested that we were being overly harsh on Philip Green and Dominic Chappelle because we should allow entrepreneurs to fail. Do you think we've been too harsh on them, Luciana? Yes, I, I don't know. I don't have a view on this particular topic. Um, I think that in venture capital, I, I don't think people are tough on entrepreneurs. I admire entrepreneurs even when they fail. They probably left a job. They probably are not sleeping nights because they don't know if they can pay their employers. They, you know, it's. I think to myself, would I just quit everything tomorrow to start something from zero? Would I take that risk? It's a hard decision to make. And yes, a lot of them will fail, but I mean, heads down, all respect to all of them who are trying and who are trying hard. We're miles too hung up on how terrible it is when companies go bankrupt. Bankruptcy is the greatest gift of capitalism. You know, when Tesco was struggling recently, people were saying it's, it just shows that they're being mismanaged. What it showed was that Waitrose and uh, Marks and Spencer's food offering and Morrison's and Lidl Help and me. all of these other companies were finding strategies that were better catering for the consumers. When Roger Federer started losing to Rafa Nadal, he hadn't got worse. Nadal had got better. Tennis is improving constantly because it is a competitive environment. Bankruptcy, so long as we have rational uh, remedial mechanisms in place so that the people who lose their jobs have the opportunity to retrain, this is absolutely part and parcel of the dynamic process of capitalism. But then you have the problem. You know, if, if, if I turn up and I tell you, Matthew, I've, I've been bankrupt three times in the last 10 years. Can you lend me a million pounds? I want to start up a shop. What are you going to say? Okay, so do you, you want to deploy due diligence. Henry Ford bankrupted his first two companies before the company that changed the world. Do you go to any, America has become the biggest economy in the world because its entrepreneurs are capable about learning the mistakes from bankruptcy and taking them forward into new ventures. Japan has exactly the opposite problem. Bankruptcy is stigmatized, which means entrepreneurs never go back. And so those lessons are lost. And that's why you can see it in venture capital. You see it almost in all of the the, the, the data. May I just say we've invested in entrepreneurs that tried before and failed. I don't know if three times. I, it's not something I've looked at in particular. Well, it's, it's, but it's, yeah, it's, if, if someone's great... Of course, not everything is going to work out. Maybe the timing of, of the market is not right, et cetera, et cetera. But you look at the person and you, you do your homework, as you said, yeah. on the person. Yeah, but it, it requires a special mind. It's a bit like me saying I failed interviews at Harvard, Oxford, and Cambridge. And what do you do for a living? Oh, I interview people now. Yeah. You know, that's, I suppose, what you're saying is that well, you, you turn, you so turn it around. Well, you, so all I'm saying is that the due diligence process, if it excludes, you want a due diligence process to get the right person. But if as part of the criteria, you exclude people who have bankrupted companies before, it is a mad But how many failures is too many failures? That, but, well, at what point can you just, do you have to go, no, this isn't going to work? Depends on the context. It's okay. highly, you can't draw the line in the abstract. I, so, but I'm just very conscious that we must not exclude people who have failed. People, there is no one who's been successful without failing. Muhammad Ali lost five times. Sci, look at science, the most successful institution in the history of mankind. The reason it's successful is for one reason. Between the time of the ancient Greeks and the early 17th century, theories never failed. If anyone came up with some interesting data that contradicted the assumptions that the Earth was the center of the universe and it was 6,000 years mm -hmm. old, these people were killed. Mm 
the theories survived, but they were rubbish. It was only when science started looking for the anomalies in the data, when it realised that in the complex world its current theories were not the final word. It started doing experiments. There are thousands of failed scientific theories. They were the necessary stepping stones to the successful theories we have today, and it's the anomalies in the theories we have today that will lead to the great theories and the enriched theories of the future. So, Luciana, you don't have a problem with... Uh, people turning up at the door with a CV full of black marks, horror stories, uh, uh, selling ice cream to, trying to sell ice cream to Eskimos, etc. If the failures are because of bad judgment, obviously that's a question mark. If the failures are because, to your point, they tried to innovate a product and maybe the time to market was too early or the product, I don't know, they thought it would be great but consumers didn't want it. Um, but they had grit and tried really hard. I mean, it's very much the full package. It's not mm. someone failed one company or someone failed two companies. Like, why did they fail? And it's really all about the person, to be honest, and the way they present this background and the way they present, okay, this is what I'm taking from this. This is the experience I'm gonna, going to apply in my my next venture. So I wish I had a, a cutoff where there is, okay, you know what? If they fail two companies, then no. <clears throat> but it's it's not black and white like that at all. So one one final very quick question, and that's it's for Matthew. What links James Dyson and David Beckham? They failed a lot. Dyson, you might think that he, who I spent last Thursday with, great, great guy, great inventor, great mindset. He, you might think, came up with the idea of the dual cyclone vacuum cleaner from which he's made his fortune because he's a very creative person and he sat back and smoked some dope, (laughs) idea popped into his head. That's not how Dyson works. He went through 5,126 failed prototypes, systematically iterating it into perfect shape. His hairdryer, a product I probably won't be using with my shaved head, (laughs) he went through 600 failed prototypes. Beckham failed a lot as he developed his technique to take free kicks. Team Sky, another great example of an institution that's... Recently... This will go out, I think, just before the Tour de France starts, the beginning of July. Um, They found that the paint of their sponsor logos weighs 100 grams. They were looking for the weaknesses, so they've changed the paint to reduce the weight. That mindset, that forensic mindset of constantly Mm. looking for continuous improvement, that's what we need more of in our world. Well, maybe another time we can talk about the theory of marginal gains, but uh, let's wrap up now. Thank you very much for both coming down. With thanks to Matthew Syed and Luciana Alexandru, this has been City AM Unregulated. And as always, you can listen to the podcast on cityam.com, download via iTunes, or listen to Audio Boom on the go. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.